and welcome to Essential Descent. I'm Wilton Vaught, producer and host of the series. This episode is Opposing Sanctions, a panel from the 2020 UNAC conference, which was held at the People's Forum in New York City. UNAC, the United National Anti-War Coalition, fights against wars at home and abroad. Their goal is to bring together organizations and movements representing people in struggle today and unify in collective action against the major perpetrator of war and injustice in the world, the U.S. government, along with its allies and proxies. My name is Sarah Flounders, and I'm going to be chairing this session. I'm with the International Action Center and part of the UNAC Administrative Committee and a planner of this conference and uh, the Coalition on U.S. Foreign Military Bases. I work with FIRE, fight for refugees and immigrants everywhere. I write for Workers' World newspaper. But really, I'm on this panel speaking to you as one of the coordinators of the Sanctions Kill campaign. And that's what we want to address, sanctions and their deadly, deadly impact. So I think the most important thing for us is that we never underestimate the power of solidarity. Solidarity and unity consciously built. It's a material force and it can change history. And we should look at it that way I'm still so excited by the news last night, and if you missed it, and if you, even if you heard it, you're going to hear it again. It's worth repeating because it's so rich in lessons for us right here today. When Greyhound announced that ICE no longer will board buses for ID checks, this was a big weapon used against migrants. Because that's who travels by bus overwhelmingly, and it's poor people but it's organizing everyone who's legal to speak out for those who aren't. That's solidarity. And that means training and educating and mass leafleting and talking to people. It's legal pressure. It was union pressure. It was the bus drivers themselves. It's people's power. It was a campaign by migrant rights groups and supporters. And it involved rights training involving millions of riders. Don't be silent. That was the message. Don't be silent. Involved the ACLU and legal suits. But it was against the largest fleet of buses, the most destinations, Greyhound. Now, the same is true for stop and frisk. This was an accepted, accepted police practice until it was challenged by tens and tens of thousands in the streets. And now it haunts Bloomberg. He was so proud of it. It was his campaign. He talked about it constantly. This racist practice. But it was accepted police practice. Promoted across the country. Until it's challenged. See, that's what's so important. It's either acceptable everywhere or it's not. And that's our role. And it has everything to do with how we see the sanctions campaign. I think a political movement, every political movement, it needs a big 
picture. We're facing a deadly world system. U.S. wars are everywhere and every day and 800 military bases. But the most pervasive weapon that seeps into every home and marketplace and school and hospital is the U.S. sanctions policy. 39 countries, a third of the world, and it's a threat to every country, every developing country. You know, there's very little understanding of how this capitalist system works on a global scale. And you can't oppose U.S. wars and regime change just piecemeal. We need campaigns that build on and reinforce our unity, that build solidarity with the most oppressed migrants here and with those targeted by this racist capitalist system and all those targeted around the world. Now, explaining sanctions' most deadly form of war, it's both difficult and yet if we focus on it, it can be very simple. It can be part of what we're actually talking about. That's why the, the, the coordinated days, three weeks from now, mid-March, March 13 to 15, think about one thing that you could do during that time. Even if it's a mass leafleting, putting up stickers in the subway. I mean, think of what you can do. A graphic, write a song, pass a resolution. Has lots of potential. The San Francisco Central Labor Council passed a unanimous resolution against sanctions and calling for actions mid-March. Now that's incredible. Can we get some other unions? There are several other unions because of that now planning to pass resolutions on sanctions. Can we get a radical city council maybe? Or a student council? Let's think about this. All kinds of resolutions against U.S. economic sanctions. It's been endorsed by thousands, translated into 18 languages by local activists, both here and around the world. And I'm talking about into Chinese and Farsi and Arabic and Bengali and Malay, Russian, Spanish, Portuguese, Creole, Korean, Malay, Japanese, many others. Venezuela has raised this as a key point at the non-aligned movement, passed overwhelmingly, unanimously also, against U.S.-imposed economic sanctions. And we should no note it's all together on that. It's U.S.-imposed. That's who's pushing this around the world. It's not development. It's can we impose underdevelopment, economic strangulation. It's a form of warfare. The African Union has demanded that sanctions be ended on Zimbabwe. Now, there's, there's some countries we know little about. Why are they even sanctioned? A congressional resolution can just sail through unanimously, voice vote. How about, why are there sanctions on Mali, on Mauritania, on Rwanda, on Congo, on Somalia, on Sudan, on Gabon, on Guinea-Bissau, on Zimbabwe? On Iran, we might know about, and Iraq, and Afghanistan, and Yemen. These are all sanctioned countries. Lebanon, Gaza, Laos, Serbia, China, Russia. And I haven't listed half the countries yet. I haven't listed half the countries yet. So where's this campaign going? What's its aim? This is a first step. We want to make the sanctions policy 
U.S. imposed economic sanctions, a word so hated that it can evoke horror, like napalm. That's why we have to change the thinking on this, like white phosphorus, like Agent Orange, like the U.S. policy of smallpox blankets to indigenous peoples. That's the way the wars have been fought always, with disease and hunger and isolation and separation, economic strangulation. That's not a mild political censure. We're talking about economic sanctions. The impact is devastating, and as I say, it needs a global campaign, and we should think about it, like stop and frisk. Unacceptable. We're not going to allow it. It's a racist policy. Now, there are people here who have a lot of experience with campaigns. Let's look at the U.S. imposed sanctions on Iraq. The death of half a million children. Madeleine Albright said it's worth it. It's worth it. It's how they think. And it can't be how we allow this thinking to go on. I worked for years on that campaign on the Iraq sanctions. We did videos and books and delegations and demonstrations and resolutions. And it changed the thinking on it. So today we want to be concrete. You see this chart here? Let's talk about what are sanctions. The U.S. and the European Union pass laws to ban, block, or restrict trade to a specific country or group or an individual. But that actually sanctions the whole country. They say, oh, this is only small. If you're on the OFAC list, you're not eating. That's a fact. Currencies are devalued, inflated when sanctions are levied. International credit ratings tank. Countries are pressured to stop doing business. The first sectors affected are generally medicine, the cost of food, power, electricity, water treatment, other essential human needs. And it's because the U.S. holds trade and banking and military dominance over most of the world that these sanctions have killed millions. That's why. And the last point we said is sanctions violate international law, the UN Charter, the Geneva and Nuremberg Conventions because they target civilians by economic strangulation, by creating famines, by life-threatening shortages and economic chaos. Now, I'm speaking here because everyone here today is an organizer. That's a fact. That is a fact. So we want to expose the horror of this work. We have all kinds of things up on the website, along with resolutions and fact sheets and translations and chant sheets. But we could have thousands more things. So submit material on every single country. When we link struggles, we build new bounds of solidarity. If you're doing Cuba work, think about linking it to the sanctions on Zimbabwe. You'll get the audience's attention. They'll see a larger picture. If you're focused on the Iran sanctions, bring in the sanctions on little Nicaragua and what that means. Maybe you're working on Venezuela. Include the sanctions on Gaza. Enlarge the understanding. Let's shake things up a bit and get outside of our comfort zones and always link it back, all of us, to what it means right here. Millions 
cut off of food stamps, SSI, housing, whole parts of this country today, and it's getting much worse, that really are sanctioned. So I hope everyone here, while you're listening to the panel, while you're listening to every one of these speakers who focus on different areas of sanctions, who've worked on this campaign, are thinking about one thing you might be able to do March 13th to 15th, coordinated actions, the period before and the period after. Now, International League of People's Struggles is organizing a study group just next week. The December 12th movement had a big meeting at the National Black Theater last night in Harlem on the sanctions on Zimbabwe. Our Korean friends here, a demonstration in Washington, D.C. on March 15th. Let's talk about U.S. wars around the world. Signed the peace treaty on Korea decades and decades later. Every Palestine demonstration, when we talk about the surrounding by the Israelis of Gaza, let's also bring in U.S. sanctions on Gaza. You know, you can't support an orphanage or a food program in Gaza from the U.S. That's a criminal offense. Is that outrageous? So the first step, our first goal is to change how sanctions are viewed. It's not an alternative to war. It's war. It's war. And the most violent and brutal and horrific form of war. War on the most vulnerable. And we have to build that anger and outrage into a mobilized rage. Then it becomes a powerful force. Right now the deaths are silent and we have to break the silence. We have to break the silence. We have to make it no longer acceptable. Republicans and Democrats can just sail through on a voice vote the sanctions on another country. But first we have to change it within our own political movement. That's the first, very first step. So that's why I say this is a room of organizers. It's a challenge. Let's think collectively. Every step of the way we're going to be saying U.S. economic sanctions are not a diplomatic tool. U.S. economic sanctions are not political censure. Economic sanctions are using disease and hunger to rip countries apart. And in closing, I want to say that there are huge changes brewing in this country. We all feel it. There is a hatred of capitalism. That's a fact. And at the same time, there are lots of folks who speak in the name of socialism, but who don't address imperialist wars, imperialist policies. We want to talk to that movement. We want to talk to this whole current, but in concrete ways that link the whole world together. That's what really this is an attempt to do. For everyone who hates this system, we have to give them a bigger picture. So there are lots of concrete ways to link the world together, and I think we really, in doing it, need new confidence. If we can change thinking, if we can mobilize anger, we can change the world. You are listening to Essential Descent.
This episode is Opposing Sanctions, a panel from the 2020 UNAC conference, which was held at the People's Forum in New York City. UNAC is the United National Anti-War Coalition. Our next speaker, this is a great panel, by the way. These are folks that are really all involved deeply in this issue and educating us. Is Jayun Ree. She is an immigrant from South Korea who served as a program coordinator of education and exposure programs at the New York-based No Du Toll. She's helped to organize annual delegations of U.S. citizens to both North and South Korea since 2002. So, Jayun Ri. My name is Juyun, and I'm a member of No Du Toll, and obviously, I'm a Korean immigrant. So I'm going to just talk about the sanctions about the DPRK. Before I go into the sanctions, why do U.S. use the sanctions as a weapon? So a lot of times you will see the sanctions are designed to change the government in the other country to be a pro-U.S. military, pro-U.S. imperialist agenda. And they are trying to create more allies. And if they refuse, then they threat with missiles and bombs and everything else, and including the sanctions. So the Korean Peninsula has been in the uh, war for the last 70 years. So the sanctions has been also 70 years. And the trade sanctions were since 1950 at the start of Korean War under the 1917 Trading with the Enemy Act. And then after the end of the World War II, you will remember the Allied power divided the Germany. And then at the end of the World War II, the Korea was divided to the North Korea and South Korea. And two lieutenants drew the 38th parallel to North and South. And then the Russia came to disarm, and then U.S. came in to quote-unquote disarm the Japanese powers. However, Korea had nothing to do with war, actually. So why wasn't the Japan be divided and disarmed? Why the Korea was divided? We always ask that question. Why? Because we were close to China and Russia? Is that the reason? This is a larger, what we talked about, larger scheme of... Um, the McCarthyist, anti-communist struggle or the power for the hegemony of the U.S. at the time. So throughout the uh, Korea history, North Korea was under the sanctions with the U.N., I mean U.S. However, North Korea had learned to survive under the sanctions, and sanctions were not that threatening because of the Soviet Union and Eastern Bloc, and they had a lot of um, other countries to do trade with. There was an alternatives. So the collapse of the Soviet Union and Eastern Bloc in 1990s tremendously impacted North Korea. In addition, there was a, some climate changes and the droughts and flood. That's how North Korea went into the famine for long years. As I said, the purpose of the sanctions was to punish the government and to change the collapse, to collapse and regime change. So after 
North Korea went into uh, 2006, the first nuclear weapon test, and then the wave of the sanctions started. In 2002 is when um, North Korea was named as an axis of evil. However, if you remember, 1993, North Korea decided to withdraw from the NPT, Non-Proliferation Treaty, and they said, we will be developing nuclear weapons since nothing is really happening. And then, to stop that, there was a diplomatic relations and talks were happening. Until 1994, there was an agreed framework that was signed, and North Korea was to abandon the nuclear weapon program, and instead, U.S. was supposed to build a two-light water reactor that they cannot switch or replace with the plutonium, and they were supposed to bring in 60 tons of the uh, heavy fuels. From 1994, they signed. Until 2002, nothing really had happened. No light water reactor. The groundbreaking ceremony only happened in 2002. So North Korea said, this is not working. We are going to pursue our nuclear weapons. But then George Bush said, you are a one of the access of evil state. And then 2004, the U.S. Congress enacted North Korean Human Rights Act. And we talked about human rights, how it's being appropriated by the capitalist and imperialist. This is to promote the human rights and freedom in North Korean refugees, not North Korean people in North Korea, but North Korean refugees who fled. And also humanitarian assistance to the North Koreans in North Korea, meaning we will help them to get out of the country. Providing grants to private other organizations, non-profit organizations to promote human rights, democracy, and developments to a market economy in North Korea. And increasing the availability of information, meaning that you can shoot the balloons out to the North Korea send the South Korean DVDs to the North Korea. And these acts was increased and, and getting a lot of money from the U.S. government to South Korea. And in 2008, in addition to that, while the six-party talks were happening and it's collapsing, U.S. law actually changed under the IEEPA and the National Emergency Act. So the president was able to call an emergency and then impose the sanctions under the executive power without going through the Congress. So North Korea had so many of that. Unfortunately, Obama actually invented the term like smart sanctions, and he signed on four additional executive orders, 2010, 2011, 2015, and 2016. These are all of the sanctions that they had added on, not only about the arms related or the weapon programs, but about the softwares and computer technologies, no technologies, no books. And also it had a huge impact on the medical and social structures. And then they enacted another Congress, congressional sanction is under the North Korea Sanctions and Policy Enhancement of 2016. That was also done by Obama administration. So Trump said, uh, countering America's adversaries through sanctions act. And then he added a whole new uh, categories of sanctions. 
there is a lot of uh, financial sanctions and then economic sanctions. Financial sanctions meaning there is uh, no transactional uh, activities in the bank or financial institutions. Why? Because there are a lot of overseas workers of North Korea working in other countries, right? So this act defined uh, forced labor. And anything that is created by the forced labor is not going to be passing through the other countries' boundaries. And now the U.S. is punishing other countries, not sanctioning North Korea. And there is a presumption in the law that anything that is produced in North Korea is a forced labor. So it's really hard to fight as a country in North Korea. And there are many other things, but if you look at the sanctionable items, always the first thing is like yacht, horse, gems, luxurious goods. So, you know, they are saying we are helping poor people to fight against the regime who is benefiting and only eating the KBR. KBR is one of the sanctionable items. However, if you go deep onto the list, in 2013, Nodutol uh, KIP program went to North Korea. And then we happened to, because of the weather, we happened to stay in the rural area. And then the hotel people were panicking because, because of the sanctions, there were no plastic toilet covers in the hotel. And they were so um, embarrassed to accept other foreigners into you know, the hotel because they had no plastic covers on the toilet. That is a luxurious goods. So then it means in a public, I mean, all that apartments the North Koreans leave, they do not have a plastic cover, I mean, the covers for the toilet. And that, that is the, the sanction. That is the sanction. And then it, it's a kind of normalcy in there because they have been living under the sanctions for 70 years. I want to also say something about the delays of the medicines. So Korea Peace Now just sent out uh, an excellent report about the impact of the sanctions. They said there is a preventable death because the delivery of the medicine came in time to the country. Then, you know, because of the vitamins, because of the antibiotics and all of these, 4,000 cases per year can be prevented. But there is a serious delay in every stop because of the sanctions that they have to go through. And that's the impact of the sanctions. That's the war without the bullets. In October 2019, there was a World Cup qualifier game. Because of the sanctions that the camera equipment were not passing through the border to go into the North Korea, so none of the games were covered in the media. But in the media here was saying that North Korea played like it's waging a war in Pyongyang against the South. And then they just said empty stadium amid media blackout. They didn't say much about why there was no media. The North Korean government thought if there's covered with the North Korean people, it's not good for the South Korean soccer players. So they decided no people will be coming into the stadium. 50,000 people can sit in that stadium. And there was an empty whole thing. And instead, it was covered in the U.S. as... North Korea blocked the media as if. But if you read the inside, it, it, it doesn't say that North Korea really blocked it. 
just one more is that because of the, uh, the financial sanctions, no remittances are passing through. It means that diplomats in UN, to the UN, the children had a really health, serious health issues because of the, they couldn't pay health insurance. So it was a cut off. And then there were some kind of panic a little bit. And then, you know, all the Koreans in the U, uh, New York had to get together. And all the doctors were making a regular visits because of the, the health insurance were not being paid up regularly. Those are serious problems. Do you know there is over 150 North Korean restaurants in the world? In Cambodia, Vietnam, Bangladesh, Indonesia, Malaysia, United Arab Emirates, Nepal... Mongolia, they are workers. North Korean workers are there. And they cannot send the money back to North Korea. So I just want to say, though, not everyone is U.S. allies. Thank goodness. So in 2019, there was a report by the Institute of Science and International Security that 56 countries were penalized for not keeping up with the U.N. sanctions, actually. You know, these countries are the ones that is still trading with North Korea and fighting against the U.S. imperialist hegemony, I guess, in the world. And they are also has to do some remedial actions and, you know, they have to give in sometimes. But it's not like we think in the U.S. that North Korea is alone and it's a bad bandits out there in, you know, isolated corner. So I just want to say the sanctions are measures of wartime. It is a crime against humanity. It targets people. It makes an, an economic inflation so high so that people, they are asking people to rise up and revolt against the government so that they can implant pro-U.S. government. And that's a war. That is a real serious war. And that kills the children and that kills the woman, as Sarah said, that kills the vulnerable people first. Thank you. You're listening to Essential Dissent. This episode is Opposing Sanctions, a panel from the 2020 UNAC conference, which was held at the People's Forum in New York City. UNAC is the United National Anti-War Coalition. Our next speaker is Roger Wareham. Roger is a spokesperson for the December 12th International Secretariat based in New York. The December 12th movement is an anti-imperialist organization in solidarity with the national liberation struggles in Africa and has focused on solidarity and ending the sanctions in Zimbabwe. Now, Roger is also a human rights attorney. That means real human rights, not... Which takes a real redefining these days and has also uh, traveled many times to Zimbabwe. So, Roger. Thank you. Well, I'll just pick up from where Jan just left off in terms of sanctions are measures of wartime and crimes against humanity. How many people have heard of Amilcar Cabral? Okay. Okay. Most people in here have not. And I raise that because Amilcar Cabral was one of the leading theoreticians. He was the head of the liberation struggle in Guinea-Bissau and in Cape Verde Islands, and he was assassinated by the Portuguese. 
But among one of the things he said that is very prescient and relevant, he said, revolutionaries can tell no lies or claim easy victories. And I raise that because one of the weaknesses of the movement in this country and of the left is that when you say the word sanctions, people think of Cuba and they think of Venezuela and they think of Iraq. And as Sarah said in her introduction, they do not think of Africa in general, nor do they think of Zimbabwe in particular. And I raise it because it's very important. Last night, as was mentioned, we had a program commemorating the, 20, the anniversary of the assassination of Malcolm X. And we decided that for that program, we were going to deal with the question of sanctions in Zimbabwe. And people will say, well, what's the connection between Malcolm X and sanctions in Zimbabwe? Some people said that. You know, some people didn't. But that Malcolm X, in terms of his growth and development, was a pan-Africanist. And Malcolm X understood the connection between the struggle of African people and diaspora, particularly in the United States, and the African continent. And that one, we could not succeed with one without the other. And that was one of the reasons that he was assassinated. He was drawing those ties. He was putting the struggle on the level of, of human rights. And we thought Zimbabwe, or we think Zimbabwe is very important because Zimbabwe is the only African country to this day which has taken the stance of returning its land from the people who stole it and returning it to its people. And it's... And it's because of that that they've come under the sanctions of the United States. If you look through the media from 1980 when Zimbabwe had its first election and President Robert Mugabe was elected president through 2001, you'd see a sort of arc of President Mugabe was lauded by the West as the, as the ideal democratic African president. They had elections, you know, all, all, that, all that went on. But... Part of the agreement that led to the elections in Zimbabwe, there was a compromise that was made that said that if you stop the armed struggle because ZANU-PF, the, the liberation forces in Zimbabwe, were about to take the capital, Harare, and the response of the whites was that they were bombing the hell out of the countries that were giving support, Zambia, Mozambique, they were bombing the civilian population. So in order to shorten that, a compromise was reached the Lancaster House in Great Britain, and part of that compromise was that whites would have a golden parachute for about 20 years in terms of representation in Parliament outside of their percentage of the population, and that there would be a fair, what do they call it, um, in terms of land, willing seller, willing buyer in terms of recovering the land. The Zimbabweans' position was that they were not going to pay whites to recover the land that had been stolen from them. And that any money that would be going to the white settlers would be come from subsidies from the UK and the United States. At our program last night, we had the former ambassador of the AU to the United States, Dr. Ariakana Chiamburi Huao, who spoke. She, she was recently relieved of her position for, as, the US ambas- as the AU ambassador to the United States because she spoke out too clearly, too frequently, and too truthfully around the role of imperialism in Africa. And she said, people don't even understand how whites got the land in Zimbabwe. Once they came in Cecil Rhodes and they, they, they took the land, but particularly after World War II, whites were veterans, European veterans of the World War II were just given, given land. So they said what, what happened was 
Cecil Rhodes and, and, the, and his descendants, they divided the land up into regions. Two regions were, were the most fertile, where the land was, was arable, I mean, it was beautiful. The African population, which was 95% of the population, was pushed to the least arable land, almost like dirt and desert. And a white settler would ride his horse as far as he could in each direction, east, west, north, and south, until either he got too tired or his horse got too tired, and that would be the boundary of his land. And so they had thousands of hectares of land. So after the Lancaster House, after the war ended, after the whites got the golden parachute, when it came time for willing seller and willing buyer, the United States and the U.K., now the United States' only nickel in that dime was that it was their kith and kin who, 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 who were part of this because the United States had no relationship to Zimbabwe or northern, southern Rhodesia. So it could only be their ties of, that's our kith and kin. They need, they need support. When it came time to fulfill that, both the United States and the U.K. said, oh, well, that was something that was done under Margaret Thatcher and Reagan, uh, so we don't have to honor that, as if treaties were not, they didn't go along, you know, this is great democracy, treaties, are, this is a land of law, so if there's a treaty, it's supposed to be honored. It wasn't tied to whoever was the president who signed it. So they refused to deal with that. The Zimbabwean masses, and particularly the war veterans' position was, we did not fight this war, we did not lose thousands and, and hundreds of, of our people to be able to have a parliament and a vote. We fought it for the land. And so they took initial steps to take the land back. The government, ZANU-PF, President Mugabe, said we're going to do this in an orderly way. And so the government took the position, we're going to return the land to the people. It was at that point in time where Robert Mugabe went from the Democratic African Thomas Jefferson to the black Hitler, like overnight. You can look it back in the media. At that point, the British put sanctions on Zimbabwe. The United States put sanctions on Zimbabwe. And the United States sanctions were even more insidious because the United States hid it under the guise of democracy. The Zimbabwe Democracy and Economic Recovery Act of 2001 said that when democracy is restored in Zimbabwe, which ignores the fact that they had had national elections and regional elections every four or five years since 1980, when democracy is restored to Zimbabwe, then the United States will withdraw the sanctions that we're imposing. The sanctions that they imposed was no bilateral loans, no loans from the World Bank or the IMF because the United States controlled that. And so basically it was a worldwide embargo against Zimbabwe. The Zimbabwe Democracy and Economic Recovery Act was co-sponsored by Jesse Helms and Hillary Clinton. And the objective, as has been said, was to create regime change, to create conditions so so bad that the people would overthrow the government. And that led over the period of time. In 2008, there was runaway inflation in Zimbabwe that was tied, that was probably what had happened in the Weimar Republic back in the early 20th century. In 2018, under President Trump, the Zimbabwe Democracy Act has been actually, it was amended to make it even tighter. This, this one, the, the latest one, said there's got to be guaranteed compensation to the white farmers who had the land taken from them. They have been unsuccessful in terms of affecting regime change. All of the things that get laid out in the different countries in terms of the effects in terms of medicine and all the effects is, is to make conditions for the masses of people worse. 
at this point in time, particularly, you know, it was mentioned that AU, the AU hasn't taken a position in terms of lifting the sanctions because the AU is filled with 54 African countries. A whole bunch of them are still under the sway of their former colonizers. But the Southern African Development Community, SADC, did take that position. And on last year at their summit, they said that we're taking a position of lifting the sanctions on October 25th. They had a day where it was a kickoff of a campaign to say that all of those countries who were part of SADC were going to have a continual campaign to lift the sanctions. And not only because of the effect on Zimbabwe, but they are a community. They are a community, and they are affected by it. I'm near the end of my time, so I just want to say this very quickly. There's a growing movement in support for that and support of lifting the sanctions. It's very important in this country that this grouping and the people that it affects understands that and lifts that up in their, in their work so that when people think of sanctions, they don't just think of Cuba or Venezuela or Iraq and Iran. They think of Africa and they think of Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe is important, and, and one of the reasons why the United States and the EU have focused on it is because of the precedent it has set. The land problem has not been resolved in Africa. It has not been resolved in particular in southern Africa. The movement has progressed to the point where Cyril Ramaphosa, the president of southern Africa, has taken the position that they are considering taking land back without compensation because he understands that if he doesn't do that, he's going to be overthrown by his people. So I think it's important that, that we understand here and that the, 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 the movement here take that up and push that. Thank you very much. You're listening to Essential Dissent. This episode is Opposing Sanctions, a panel from the 2020 UNAC conference, which was held at the People's Forum in New York City. UNAC is the United National Anti-War Coalition. We're learning a lot in this, right? A lot of history. But it's, it's really people's history and resistance to it, too. Our next speaker is Medea Benjamin, and she is a co-founder and director of a dynamic peace and justice organization, Code Pink. She's also a leader of the Fair Trade Advocacy Group, Global Exchange. She's the author of a number of books and articles on political issues, and she's organized tours of many countries that have been under attack by the U.S. So, Medea. Thank you. So I want to thank Sarah for not only organizing this panel, but for the March, uh, well, the Sanctions Kills Coalition that's so important. And we're going to have a chance in March 13th to 15th to really use the information that we're learning here and that's on the site. And in fact, in preparation for giving a 10-minute talk, I've read through almost every single article that's on the site of Sanctions Kill. And let me tell you, that should be like a college course. It is fantastic. So read through them. And what it'll do, you know, we are people who, like, our blood is already boiling by what our country is doing, but it makes you so mad to see that. It's like the mafia is in control of this country, the bullies, the sadists. They are just mean, horrible people 
that are making people's lives miserable around the world. This is not something new. I learned by reading on your website that Woodrow Wilson in 1919 had talked about sanctions being a lethal weapon that no nation could overcome if we impose them. And we know in more recent history, we talk about Cuba sanctions being coming back 60 years ago. And you talk about the white settlers wanting to get a compensation. Same thing in Cuba. The ones living in this country want to be compensated for land they say they lost 60 years ago. And now the Trump administration has opened up the courts to allow those lawsuits to happen. You know why? To make people afraid of investing in Cuba. So these policies are designed to make people's lives miserable. And as we talk, I want to bring into the room some of the people that I've met by traveling to Iran, meeting a guy in the marketplace who came over when he saw we were Americans and started crying and asking, why is your government keeping my wife from getting the cancer medicine she needs to survive? She is dying and she is suffering and we are suffering. I mean, that is our government's policy to make these people suffer. Going to Cuba and going to a lovely little restaurant and learning that they've lost 80% of the business that they poured their entire life savings into because Trump now says that Americans shouldn't be traveling to Cuba. North Korea, the people, the women who now can't have a job in the textile business because textiles are now illegal for anybody in the world to buy because the U.S. just says that, throwing thousands and thousands of North Korea women out of their jobs. And as people have said on this, it's about regime change, but that's not all it's about. We see in the case of attacking Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, it's about the wonderful pink tide that it happened to bring progressive governments to Latin America and create alliances like the ALBA Alliance that was an alternative to the U.S. And the U.S. wants to destroy those alliances. And there's another issue I think it's important to understand. This is also about domestic politics. Because if you look at Latin America and why there's been such incredible attacks on Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, it's not just that we want to overthrow their governments. It's that we want to please a very small right-wing sector of this community that lives primarily in Florida, primarily in Miami. And because Florida is such an important state in the elections, they are the Democrats and Republicans imposing more and more brutal hardships on people in Latin America to try to win over their votes. And I see Cassia there from Florida, and I see Camilo there from Florida. Isn't this the truth? It is disgusting, and it's a bipartisan policy. So... We also have to recognize, while we hope this empire dies and dies quicker than sooner than later, let's just think about the power of the dollar right now and why the U.S. can get away with these policies. One thing is something that the majority of this country doesn't know anything about called the SWIFT system. And it is the system of communication between banks. And it's controlled by U.S. companies. And so the U.S., can 
demand that the SWIFT system not uh, process transactions that go from one bank to another anywhere in the world, even if it's not a U.S. bank, the smallest transaction to the biggest transaction. Also recognize that the currency for international trade is the dollar right now. That has got to change. And certainly, there are countries around the world that are experimenting and trying to get off of the dollar. But that's the only way this is really going to be changed, when there's enough strength of alternative currencies so that the dollar is not the number one source of international trade. The other thing that this Trump administration has done better than any others in recent history is really use those mafia-type tactics to threaten other countries if they don't obey U.S. sanctions. And you see them threatening small countries all the time, but they threaten big countries. Look at the daughter of the billionaire from China who is under house arrest in Canada right now, facing extradition to the United States for having violated sanctions against Iran. They are going after the big ones as well. They are threatening China so much that China is now reducing the imports of oil that it has been buying from Iran. And we see that this administration has absolute disregard for international institutions. When Venezuela in 2018 took the United States to the International Court of Justice and won a ruling that said the United States cannot deny food and medicines, what did the U.S. do? They withdraw from the treaty on which that was based. And we know John Bolton, who thank goodness is no longer the national security advisor, but you might recall when the International Criminal Court was talking about looking into Taliban and U.S. war crimes in Afghanistan, what did the Trump administration do? They threatened sanctions against the judges of the International Criminal Court. It is incredible. And Jeff Mackler, who was up here, was talking about, after the killing of Soleimani in Iraq, how the Iraqi parliament voted to kick the U.S. troops out of Iraq. What did the Trump administration do? Not only did they say we're going to impose sanctions on Iraq that will make the Iranian sanctions look tame, but they also said they would hold on to the oil revenues of Iraq that who knew they're in the federal bank here in New York. And the Iraqi parliamentarians looked at each other and they said, that would mean the collapse of our country. So the U.S. has just so much economic power. It is mind-blowing and something that has to change, and more and more countries are starting to see that. I'm on my way next week to the European Parliament where we're going to have a day-long discussion about this and ask why is it that the Europeans have been so willing to be under the thumb of the United States and how the institution that they set up to counter the sanctions on Iran called INSTEX has not processed one transaction since the time it was set up over a year ago. European people want to know why their governments aren't doing more. So in just the remaining two minutes I have, I want to say that we can use the power of our economic uh, power as citizens, and we are doing that very differently from the way our governments do it. 
We are doing it from the grassroots up, as has been the tradition in the United States civil rights movement, the farm workers movement, using campaigns of boycott, divestment, and sanctions against very repressive countries like Israel. And that is an alternative to what our government is doing. We're also starting a campaign of boycott against Saudi Arabia, a country that has perhaps the worst human rights record in the world, but is the great ally of the United States. We are, as a community, going into our schools, our our universities, our pension funds, and calling for divestment from the war machine. And I want to recognize Cody Urban here, who works with Code Pink, and you can talk to him about the divestment campaigns, successes in our nation's capital, divesting from the war machine, successes now in universities that are calling for divestment. And I think we can add divestment and the sanctions campaign as part of those local campaigns we do. We also at Code Pink take people to these countries so they can see for themselves and come back with their own stories. And I want to recognize Terry, wherever you are. Terry Matson. I don't see her. Ah, there she is, um, who is organizing a lot of the trips coming up to Cuba. We have trips to Iran. We have trips to Honduras, to Bolivia. If you want to learn more about them, you could talk to Terry or you could look online. And I just want to close by saying how excited I am that this movement has taken on this issue of sanctions, recognizing that sanctions is definitely no alternative to war, that sanctions is a form of warfare, that people all around the world are dying because of our U.S. sanctions. And our job is to educate people about that, activate them, make them as angry as we are, and stop this government from imposing such horrific suffering on people around the world. Thank you. Now, sometimes people put down a conference where there are a lot of political people and they say, oh, you're just preaching to the choir. But I'll tell you, when people sing with one voice, it is the most powerful thing. And it can overwhelm all kinds of discordant background noise. So it's very important for our movement as a whole to talk to each other and to also begin to speak more and more with one voice, where we're listening to each other, but in harmony. That is a really important part of political organizing. Very important part also, uh, and the question of how, how to link it to conditions right here at home. What if no one here suddenly had access to diabetes medicine or heart medicine or cancer meds or flu shots or vaccines? You needed any kind of penicillin or antibiotic in the past year or two. You could do a poll at almost any health event and it immediately brings it home because it it does raise a question of what do people hear and in the whole world have a right to, have a right to. 80,000 people in the U.S. died of flu last year. That's how bad the medical system is here. 
That's how bad it's so damn expensive even to go to a doctor. People wait until they're in the final stages of pneumonia. We got to link it even if we're talking about water to say, how about when you, if a whole country is drinking water like they drink in Flint or Newark. See, bring it home here, but talk about also what's happening there. I, I think this is really important. The more we're thinking of raising the question of what we have a right to here and what the people of the whole world have a right to. Uh, a final thing is on the military budget, because I, I, 10%, the whole military budget, my God, you could remake the whole planet about 10 times over. 10% of the military budget would end poverty, hunger, homelessness, planet-wide. Planet-wide. I mean, this is a huge, huge waste but it's not a waste to the capitalists. It's a source of endless guaranteed profit, giant subsidy. So we're, we're talking about both the militarism and denying people all over the world. And that is what imperialism does. It doesn't build up. It only extracts. And the only way the U.S. sees to go forward is to bring other countries down. So we've got to stand up against that. That builds solidarity. You've been listening to Essential Dissent. I'm Wilton Vaught, producer and host of the series. This episode was Opposing Sanctions, a panel from the 2020 UNAC conference, which was held at the People's Forum in New York City. UNAC, the United National Anti-War Coalition, fights against wars at home and abroad. Their goal is to bring together organizations and movements representing people in struggle today and unify in collective action against the major perpetrator of war and injustice in the world, the U.S. government, along with its allies and proxies. You can find Essential Dissent on YouTube, Facebook, and iTunes, and you can download the audio for free via RadioForAll.net. That's Radio the number four, all.net. Thanks for listening.